0: Hello, we're back with Evangelion interpreting scripture and life, and particularly interpreting the letter of Galatians. And We're right at the end of Galatians 3, and another uh, very, very well-known passage, one which has in many ways taken on a life of its own. Um, But it's important that we understand it in its context, uh, as we've done with uh, all the passages, hopefully, so far. Paul Jewett once referred to Galatians 3.28 as the Magna Carta of humanity. By this, he meant that it was the most significant text in the entire biblical corpus which stood in support of social equality. Another scholar, Klein Snodgrass, referred to it as the most socially explosive statement in the New Testament. It became the battleground for many a social debate, and in uh, some instances still is the great 4th century church fathers athanasius and hilary of poitiers used galatians 3:28 to refute the arian idea that god and jesus were only one in will and not in nature the abolitionist campaigners of the 19th century used the passage as a basis of suggesting that human development was a move towards a kind of universal human progress and as such slavery could never be justified in the modern era. The celebrated Christian feminist scholar Elizabeth Schutler Fiorenza claimed that Galatians 3.28 deconstructed models of patriarchy and male domination which meant that the exploitation of women could have no place in the church. And indeed, the passage has been seized upon by many a feminist interpreter since. There's no doubt that the passage strongly suggests a kind of radical egalitarianism, one which appears to cut across both Roman and Jewish thought. Indeed, there's a Jewish prayer, which many a Jewish man would recite every morning, which says, "'Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a foreigner. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. Needless to say, many have argued that Paul crafted Galatians 3.28 as a rebuttal to that prayer. Paul writes that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ. The correlation seems very close. And it's probably not coincidental that in the last binary in that verse, the one about male and female, that the conjunction actually changes. Now, this is a subtle difference, but I think it's an important one. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. But in that final dualism, he writes, there is not male and female. A number of commentators, and I would include myself in this number, suggest that this is an echo of Genesis 127, where the author writes he created the male and female. I'd suggest that Paul draws upon the creation text to suggest that God is in some way in the process of recreating. This is a new creation, and that some of uh, these dualisms are would cease to hold any sway within this new thing that god is doing some have suggested that this last dualism the one about male and female is to reflect the erasure of sexual distinction and a return to what's often recalled uh, what's often called the myth of the original androgyne now remember in Genesis 1.27, the author writes that God made them male and female. Male and female he created them. Well, there are some who think that God's original creation was not a man and a woman, but rather one androgynous, genderless being um, which God created, and that sexual distinction only actually came later. In fact, it came in the second creation account in Genesis 2. That theory was actually proposed by Dennis R. Macdonald, and it's won a fair amount of support, although personally I'm not persuaded by it. But however wonderful and powerful Galatians 3.28 might be, it's got to be grounded in the exegesis of the letter as a whole, and it forms part and parcel of the very argument that Paul has been making all along, and this is the way I want us to understand it. Now Paul's just explained that the role of the law, in particular uh, how the law of Moses and the promises to Abraham are not at odds. And he goes on to explain that rather the promises and the law simply had two different roles to play. Well having established that the purpose of the law was to point to Christ, Paul now establishes the dynamics of being in right relation to God. This is what he says in Galatians 3, 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, and there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ... Then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. Now although there is some dispute, it's quite likely that the text is some kind of baptismal formula. Perhaps something like this was read out when a new believer was immersed. But Galatians 3:27 concludes that everyone who is baptized into Christ has effectively put on Christ as a garment. Jesus becomes your new set of clothes when you're baptized and when you are therefore in Christ. And with Christ as your new clothes, you appear differently to the world. In other words, baptism is an issue of taking on the Christ identity. In order to fully clarify what this means in context, I'm going to make mention of a Greek phrase that Paul uses a few times in uh, the letter to the Galatians, and the purpose of so doing should become fairly clear very quickly, whether or not you speak any New Testament Greek. Remember, in Galatians 2:16, Paul says that knowing that a man is not justified from the works of the law, but dia pisteos Jesus Christu through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, a little later, as we saw in Galatians 3:14, Paul writes that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles in Christ Jesus in order that we might receive the promise of the Spirit dia pisteus Christu, through faith in Christ. Then here in Galatians 3.26, we read that for you are all sons of God, dia pisteus Christu Jesu, through faith in Christ Jesus. The Greek phrase implies that through faith in Christ these things have come. So one is justified through faith in Christ, one receives the Spirit through faith in Christ, and believers are all sons and of course daughters of God through faith in Christ. This is an important critical connection. For the early church, baptism was an initiation rite, and just as in Jesus' own baptism and when the 3,000 Jews were baptised at Pentecost, this was probably the moment when believers were imbued with the Holy Spirit. Receiving the Spirit and becoming a son of God is what salvation looks like dynamically when someone is identified by the Spirit and not by any ethnic markers, social markers or gender markers then one can say that they are truly among the people of God. This connection will reoccur in chapter 4 verse 6, where being a son of God and the presence of the Spirit are once more very closely interrelated. So then, this is not just some random egalitarian charter or a piece of Pauline feel-good theology. Galatians 3.28 is a very pivotal step in the argument. When someone is identified by the Spirit, that Spirit who conveys the risen Christ into those with faith, then in that context it may be said that the distinction Jew and Greek ceases to have any purchase. It's in that context that there is no longer slave nor free. It's in that context that there's no longer male and female. Now, It's not that Paul is somehow unaware that there are still people who are ethnically Jewish and people who are ethnically Greek, but rather that these are mere external markers, markers of the flesh. True identity lay internally, where the presence of the risen Christ lived because of the Spirit. And one couldn't be defined as Jew or Greek internally, these are only external markers, in the same way, slave and free, they're external ideas. Social class is an artificial construct, but when someone is marked by the Spirit, such a distinction is futility. And when one is identified internally, the gender equality marked out by Genesis 127 is fully restored. So faith and receiving the Spirit are correlated ideas. Remember, the promise of the Spirit is the blessing of Abraham. We learned that in Galatians 3.14. And thus Paul writes in Galatians 3.29, as he rounds off this passage, If you are of Christ, then you are a seed of Abraham. Think back to Galatians 3.16. There is only one true seed of Abraham, one true heir of the Abrahamic promise, and that's Christ. But everyone who is of Christ, or in Christ as Paul usually says, shares in that inheritance. And this is why he ends the chapter by saying that they are heirs according to the promise. So once more I summarise thusly. Here's where the argument's got us so far. The law cannot make alive, we know that from Galatians 3.21, but it can point to the risen Christ who can indeed make someone alive when the Spirit brings the risen life into a person through faith. And at this point, people are no longer slaves or under-trainers or stewards, but on the basis of faith are sons of God, and that sonship is exercised in baptism. To be marked with the risen Christ by the Spirit is to take on the identity of the end-time people of God, and it's in this sphere that no one is defined by ethnic category, social class, or gender. They are simply of Christ and recipients of the new life of the Spirit, according to the Abrahamic promise. That question, who am I, can be one of the most important and yet puzzling questions that a person ever asks. The question of social identity, where do I fit in? It's puzzling because it involves so many components, often just like the ones that Paul raises in Galatians 3.28, issues of gender, social class, or ethnicity. When someone asks, where are you from? How do you answer? Is it where I was born? What my passport says? Where my parents are from? Where I live now? What color my skin is or what language I speak? None of those things fully answers that question, the question of where we're from, who we are, what our origins are. There's no finite answer that comes from those externalities even though they all contribute something, however small. We ask these questions though because we want to belong. We want to be part of the tribe. We want to know that we're accepted. In many ways justification is all about acceptance. God accepts people on the basis of their trust in his Son and on no other basis, not even being a member of the chosen people Israel. God determines his people by the presence of the risen Christ and by the Spirit who conveys the risen Christ into the faithful. His people are those who are in Christ, for this is where new life is found. This is the true end of the curse of exile. This is the true reversal of death, someone being made alive in Christ and by Christ. The true restoration from exile doesn't place someone in a holy land, but places someone in Christ. So for those of us who are in Christ, before we're an ethnic category, before we're a distinct class or a gender, we are the people of God, the seed of Abraham and heirs according to the promise.